Jalen and Jacoby, the after show is presented by ADT, real protection. And now, Jalen and Jacoby. Welcome to Jalen and Jacoby, the after show. Just watched B Water, the story of Bruce Lee, and we are joined by the director, Bao Win. Bao, what a masterpiece. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to start this where the film started with that test footage of a young Bruce Lee kind of getting camera tested for a Hollywood film. Why did you decide to sort of cold open with that? I think this is like a version of Bruce Lee that we're not used to seeing. He's kind of like antsy, anxious, not his confident self right away. He doesn't know what's going on. This is his first screen test for Hollywood that he's been a part of, even though in his past life in Hong Kong, he was a child star. Um, but at the same time, the footage shows just his charisma as as the screen test continues. You can just see him about to whoop this guy's ass right <laughs> on screen. Um, and so I think it showed all the different layers that I wanted to tell in the story of Bruce from kind of uh, Bruce as an insecure having vulnerabilities to his rise into like being this badass martial artist. And I think within just that screen test, there's that many layers as a huge Bruce Lee stand myself. I applaud the work you did with this because I remember in my childhood making the ghetto noon chucks or wearing the Bruce Lee shoes as we called them and going to see the movies and stuff like that and really mimicking a lot of what he did. What was your goal when you decided that you were going to make this documentary? Well, I, you know, for me, I, I came in a later generation. I was born 10 years after Enter the Dragon came out. So I wasn't going to see them in the movie theaters in like Chinatown or up in Harlem. I was watching Bruce Lee on syndication, like on Saturday night television. And at the time, I didn't know who he was really. But I just remember like as a little kid, I wasn't used to seeing faces that look like me on screen, right? And if I did see them, they were usually negative. They were like a sidekick or a, so, uh, like a servant or a villain. So seeing someone like Bruce Lee with like all his energy, all his uh, on-screen charisma, I was like, that's the first time I see a hero that looks like me. And that's when I kind of knew the mythology of Bruce Lee, but I didn't know who he was as a person. And that's one of the reasons I made the film is kind of unpack that mythology and figure out how Bruce turned into Bruce Lee. I mean, I think that's a really good point about underrepresentation and sort of suppression and oppression, which obviously are some of the themes that our society is dealing with right now. What sort of parallels can you draw between this story, Bruce's story and what you're seeing every day, literally right outside of your apartment in downtown Los Angeles? Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously a strange time and it's crazy how uh, relevant a lot of the issues in the film are to today, not just with what's going on with uh, George Floyd and all the racial injustice that's happening, but also with COVID. And I think, um, you know, just couple, like a week ago, when you're thinking about COVID and how people are stuck at their house, we don't have like the face-to-face interaction that we would normally have, like our our interaction with society is through like the images we absorb through television, through film or books that we might be reading at home. So that's why how we see ourselves on those images on those screens are so important that they're authentic, that they represent like a multifaceted part of communities and individuals mm-hmm. like Asian Americans. Because if you were to just watch the news and just 
walk outside, like as an Asian American, I'm kind of scared to like cough sometimes uh, when COVID was really bad because people would just start harassing me. And, um, and it's, it's just creates this, this division and this idea of like basing someone's uh, opinion of you on what they look like or where they came from. And then going forward to this week and how crazy it's been with, with the racial injustice and police brutality. Um, I think about Bruce and everything that he learned from people uh, around him. His first student, Jesse Glover was uh, uh, African-American and he learned martial arts because he was a victim of police brutality. And I think Mm. those type of experiences really informed who Bruce Lee would become as a person. He would meet people based on, on who they were instead of what they looked like or where they came from. And I think that's a, a lesson that I hope people take away from the film with Bruce and his philosophy and just like, uh, yeah, not, not trying to make divides, but trying to bridge the gap, as they say, in martial arts. And that's a commonality that we both have because in watching some of our favorite karate or kung fu movies when I was young, as somebody that was going to the theaters and seeing these movies, that's what made Jim Kelly so important to us because to see a black American that was also on the screen and doing martial arts, he was the first person that we saw. So it made us feel like, okay, it is cool because he was cool. He was always dressed nice. He was always on top of his game. And it reminded me of how when I was young, I always wondered, how Bruce Lee died. And I noticed in the piece that it necessarily didn't say it. Was that intentional? I mean, I think for me, the film was always about like living in the present time of Bruce Lee, right? Uh, we don't talk so much about the legacy and the impact because I think we all have that different entry point of what Bruce Lee meant to us. But when, it, when we're talking to the people who knew Bruce Lee, who loved him, who were friends with him, who were his students, um, that's a very specific story that, that no one can kind of replicate. So I always knew that I wanted this, the film to be in the present moment of Bruce Lee. And even when we get to his death, that, that's a film on its own in many ways because there's so much speculation about how he died. But when I talk to the people who knew him and who were most impacted, obviously, by his uh, tragic death, they were like, you know, he's, he passed away. We have come to peace with it. And the coroner's report says this, and that's all that matters to us because we lost a friend, we lost a father, we lost a husband. And I wanted to, to you know, approach it delicately because – I think a lot of times when we think of Bruce Lee's death, we get into the weeds of the conspiracy and we don't feel the tragedy of someone dying young, of the lost potential of Bruce Lee dying, right? Because it's a tragedy. I mean, I wanted people to feel that impact when he died and feel like they knew him and that they lost a friend when they were watching that moment. That's a really good point. It does sort of feel like the speculation around his death is such that it it doesn't fully let us appreciate and value his life, especially since he died so early. And I also wanted to ask a a, a quick filmmaking question, like around that death, there were sort of these, these sort of out of focus shots of, of trees and, and, and moving sweeping shots. And there was, and there was a sort of a bird and what sort of made you choose those images for that part of the film? 
So, I mean, the film is entirely archival, right? Again, I wanted to immerse the audience in Bruce Lee's world. That's 1960s America, 1970s Hong Kong. So that was from a month uh, before Bruce Lee died. There was a big typhoon in Hong Kong. And so, you know, the, the, the title of the film is Be Water. And it's just this quiet moment where, you know, Bruce Lee passes away and the water just crashes and it's just like torrential downpours as typhoon happens. And we just have this moment where we feel the impact without hearing so much voiceover. And we can just like have a quiet moment where we lost, uh, you know, this future icon, this future legend, and it, it impacts us in a certain way. So I just wanted to kind of bring out the, the elemental quality of water and the kind of the, the violence of water sometimes. I underestimated how accomplished he was as a child actor. How often did he work? Well, they consider, I mean, if you think about like a, a contemporary version of him now, he would be like the Macaulay Culkin of, mm. of, of Hong Kong at the time. I mean, he was really prolific and, you know, the orphan, his, the, his last film that he did was this huge box office hit. And yeah, people kind of forget, uh, that part of his life. And I think that part's really important because without that training of like that drama training, that theatrical training, being a performer early on, uh, I don't think it, it explains why he was so amazing on camera in his Hollywood days and his later, you know, Hong Kong films, because he was training for it his whole life. He wasn't just training to be a martial artist. He was training to be a performer and, and that shows in, in, his childhood uh, acting. Um, there's a point in the film, and I believe it is his wife that says that, you know, he, he actually wasn't trying to pursue acting when he came to, you know, when he was um, in that second run in Hollywood, that he wasn't really trying to pursue. It. He really just wanted to open up martial arts schools, sort of like spread his, his idea of martial arts throughout. So do you think that was a true interest to him? Do you think that was true? Because it always seems like he was always acting. Like, what do you think he felt in terms of acting versus opening up new schools for martial arts? I don't know if he, it seems like everyone I talked to that when, when he did the screen test for Green Hornet, it was a big surprise to everyone. Even the idea that he was an actor in the Hong Kong days, mm. uh, his early childhood, that was a surprise to a lot of his friends. One of the things that I learned is that he he didn't think he could ever be an actor in Hollywood because he was used to these depictions of Asian Asian Americans that that he was witnessing Asians as the enemy again as the servant and this is he's coming into 1960s America where you know 10 years earlier was the Korean War 20 years earlier was uh, was World War II where the Japanese were the enemy and then the Vietnam War is just kind of starting to boil up. And so the enemy looked like him. The enemy on screen was was Asian. So I don't think he really, he didn't think that he could make it big in Hollywood at all. Um, but I think one of his goals when he first came to America that Linda, his wife says, is that he wanted to share his Asian culture to the world, right? That was how he was going to be his version of American, right? Instead of trying to assimilate too much he realized the beauty of of gung fu and how he could meld that and kind of uh, uh transition that into his life in america and then he realized the power of of media the power of film and tv like i was saying earlier like when we get to see our representations on screen 
that's like the most efficient way to kind of um, show positive stereotypes and positive definitions of who we are. So beyond just being a martial arts teacher, he wanted to show how an Asian Asian American can be to the masses. And he felt TV and especially TV in the sixties was such a huge thing. He knew that's, that was the best way to, to expand on his message. What about his cautionary tale, acknowledging that fame could be very, very costly. You know, I think that's something that we all uh, think about when we think of celebrities who especially pass away young, right? Because they put so much pressure on themselves to be excellent, to be uh, exemplary when they're, they're young and they're, they have so much pressure on them. I think in a way, uh, Bruce put that pressure on himself. He, he was always training. He was always working out. Like there's a funny story that uh, Nancy Kwan, who's one of the actresses that he worked with, was saying like he would have a, uh, you know, a weight in one hand and like a sandwich in the other. And he would just be <laughs> that efficient with his life. Um, so he was, yeah, he was always putting this pressure on himself. And over time, that pressure can really kind of uh, pin you down and make you lose sight of a lot of things, especially, you know, the effects on his family, the effects on himself, the effects on his health. One of my uh, favorite parts of the film was when he literally was in his trailer, I believe, and refused to sort of come on set because he wasn't happy with the script of this film. And he wanted to sort of inject some more philosophical, you know, sort of deeper meaning into the script. And you sent it, showed a clip from it, which was clearly sort of some of his influence over it. Um, can you imagine that sort of thing happening today? And what else do you have from that story? Because I find it fascinating. He was basically on strike until he came on to set. What else did you learn about that that wasn't in the film? So, I mean, you know, he, that, that, that could be kind of like a behind the scenes film on its own, right? Like Bruce mm. Lee saying, enter the dragon is not being made because you're not going to make it the right way. You're not going to use my voice. You're not going to be authentic to who I am as a person, as a, as a human being. And I think Bruce Lee always fought that battle his whole life. And I think a lot of people, especially people of color are fighting that battle in Hollywood and in the industry, because even though, uh, Obviously, times have changed and progressed. There's still a, a battle being waged for our, our representation on screen, and not just uh, on screen, but also behind the camera in terms of the stories that are being told and how they're being told. So I think this is kind of a good comparison, that story of Bruce fighting for his words, his voice to literally be put into Enter the Dragon and... Um, we, we do that fight every day, you know, me living in, in LA, it's not just about uh, what story we get to tell, but who gets to tell that story, because I think it's so important in terms of representation, the having authenticity and honesty of representation, that uh, we, we get to speak from our own heart, get to speak from our own experiences. And I think that's what Bruce Lee was pushing for. He was never a sidekick like in real life he was never subservient so why would he ever play that like even with uh, Cato and Green Hornet when he was playing a show classic he he had he was going to be that badass you know sidekick that he wanted to include more lines for himself he wanted to really show his uh his charisma and not just be subservient and uh it doesn't help especially in our current climate when we have somebody 
with a really powerful position in politics and has a megaphone that's not bringing us all together. It's actually doing the opposite. And it goes to my next question of why you felt it was important that he married a white woman. I think it was important in, to include in the film, obviously, because we're, again, we're talking about 1960s America. And even today, talking about interracial marriage might offend some people, which is really surprising. So, you know, you have a Chinese man marrying a white woman. That is, that's kind of crazy for many people to think about in the sixties. Um, and it's, it's just, for me, it's like, the, the film is not just about Bruce Lee, but the America that Bruce Lee was living in. And that's a very important aspect of it, the relationships that he's living in. And Asian American males are never seen as romantic leads, hardly ever uh, on screen. So Bruce Lee wasn't just like representing, you know, Asian Americans on screen, but representing them in real life and showing how different we could be and how multifaceted we can be and just um, how important it is to kind of like take charge and not kind of rely and succumb to the stereotypes and what people think you're supposed to be. That's well put. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you sort of is some of your filmmaking decision. And one of the things that stood out to me the most is we've seen so many documentaries, especially the 30 for 30 series, and you always sort of see the people in the interviews and then it gets covered with B-roll and it kind of goes back and forth from there. And that's very much the traditional way of doing it. What was, what was behind the decision to sort of do it another way, just sort of font who was speaking and they use their voice and never really see the interviews or them until the end? I think it was really early on that I, I wanted to do that because again, it's, it's about living in Bruce's present time, living the stories with Bruce instead of having someone talk about it in the past tense or make it feel nostalgic or any way. I mean, I love all types of documentaries. I love documentaries that have talking heads, but I think they have to have a reason for it. And for me, when you're having someone who's, you know, in their seventies, eighties, Bruce would have been 80 this year talking about a 20 year old, 30 year old Bruce Lee. That's, that's very jarring. Right. Um, and I, I wanted the film to kind of have this fluidity, uh, like water, you could say, and never feel mm. like you're being jumped out of, of the same time as Bruce Lee. And I think, you know, at the end of the film, when we do finally see these faces, we see Kareem today, we see Linda today. You also think about what would Bruce look like today, right? A little bit. You think about exactly what eighty-year-old Bruce. Exactly what I thought of. Exactly what I thought of when I when I saw the images at the end. Can you explain for the people at home that if it went over their head, what the important term to Bruce Lee "be water" really meant? I mean. You know, he learned it very early on in his life uh, when he was training with Yip Man. And I think it was, you know, he was, when he was young, he was a hardhead. He was kind of this hooligan type of kid. And martial arts, Kung Fu, Wing Chun, they all helped form him into being more of a fluid individual um, and not being so rigid, not 
kind of relying on past systems, but understanding that things can change things. You can be flexible. You can be like water. And I think because of this philosophy, he lived such a rich life because he was so open to meeting people from different cultures, different communities. Again, he was growing up in America. When he arrived in America, he lived in Seattle. He, he was, his best friend was uh, African-American. Um, his other uh, students were Hispanic American. He married a white woman and then he moved to Oakland. You know, there's a big distinction between living in Oakland and, and San Francisco. And he was living in Oakland in the sixties and then going to Los Angeles and, you know, teaching someone like Kareem, he was, you can just, just through those relationships, you can see how he was like water. And for me, like the title of the film is, is relating to the other narrative thread of the film. You know, the film is not just about Bruce Lee. It's about America. It's about the America that Bruce Lee lived in. So water be water is very much a metaphor for America. I think um, America is ever fluid. It's a, it's a changing experiment. It's evolving. My parents were Vietnamese war refugees. They left Vietnam on a boat, came to Hong Kong, lived in a refugee camp, then, then moved to America. And my mom considers herself more American than Vietnamese now. And like, that's, that's the beauty of America that we can, we can mold it and change it the way that we wish we want to see it. And I think, uh, there's these moments in the film. Uh, that we talk about, like the Chinese Exclusion Act, we talk about, you know, uh, brutality against African Americans and the civil rights movement. And I see these as kind of like rocks in American history and rocks in the film that Bruce has to get around, right? Like the racism that he faces in Hollywood. These are all obstacles. And like today, you know, given what's going on, America's hitting the same rock. I mean, we're like crashing against this rock. So I hope we find a way to get around it. That's really well put. And I've, uh, sort of one last question for you and, uh, and when I was watching the film, you know, Bruce Lee's voice because it was prominent throughout it as others. And also some of uh, Bruce Lee's letters were read. And my question is, were those the entire letters? Because it was always like two sentences. So like, did, <laughs> are they, is that a selection from the letter or would he take the time <laughs> to send you a letter to on, just give you, you like two out, sentences? Right? You're calling me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, we're, making, we're making a film here. I can't. Yeah. I can't the letters. Those letters were long. Okay. Okay. Good. So yeah, they, I was like, man, this guy's really, we're petty. It's really professional. <laughs> this guy's brief with his letter writing, yeah. like man, Bruce. He was very philosophical, so I had to take some creative license as a filmmaker <laughs> to say, "Hey, what is the essence of what he's trying to say?" So, yes, they're they're, they're, they're a bit condensed. Yeah. So I got one more question. I know Jacoby wanted to wrap it up. Can you give me anything on Bruce and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? So I was hoping that they were playing pickup games or something like that. Can you imagine Bruce playing ball with Kareem? Mm. But they were not. But I mean, one one aspect of of their relationship that we couldn't get to include in the film that I wish we did is that when I when um, Kareem opened up about Bruce, he said that you know Kareem's two greatest teachers in his life was John Wooden and Bruce Lee, mm. and I think that says a lot about their relationship and how much Kareem respected Bruce Lee. Really well put. Thank you so much for joining us, Bao Wing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Wonderful film. We loved it so much. Really appreciate you joining Jalen Jacoby, The After Show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. When it matters most, trust ADT. Now more than ever, you need peace of mind with 24-7 rapid response monitoring from the leader. 
in home security. Be an everyday hero by staying safe at home while ADT helps protect you and your loved ones. ADT has nine owned and operated U.S.-based monitoring centers and the largest security network in the U.S. ADT takes protecting your health seriously. Rest assured, all ADT employees are taking critical measures to help protect everyone's health, including offering contactless installation and using extra protective and sanitation tools. You can protect now, pay later with low, flexible monthly payments to fit your budget. So help protect your home today with ADT. So much fun to talk to the director about these films, Jalen. It's so nice to get this opportunity because you kind of get inside their mind and get new insight. I, did, I also love the idea of Kareem and Bruce playing one-on-one. I really, I, they must have, right? <laughs> they must have. Lie to me. Just tell me that they did. Please tell me that they talked about Kareem it. Kareem too focused and too serious. The same with Bruce Lee. They weren't getting into any shenanigans. No. No, uh, but I like the idea that did. And you know what? I'm glad you brought up shenanigans, right? Because I had this on my list of questions for Bao, but I didn't want to ask him. It, there's one point they're like, you know, Bruce was really like, he was, a, he was a part of the seventies and he was really a child of the seventies and he was, he was enjoying the seventies or something like that. And that started to make, make me think, it's like, did Bruce Lee get it in? Cause if you even think about the way he dressed, the way he presented himself, just the charm that he had, I think he got it in. Let me just tell you something, dog. Tell me. Bruce Lee was invited to all of the cookouts. Do not get it <laughs> twisted. Do not get it twisted. I was not fronting because he was on the show. We were getting the Bruce Lee black flats with no strings in them. Mm-hmm. We was getting and making the noon chucks, the nunchucks. We was doing that. We was actually kicking and practicing the moves. Seriously. Jim Kelly, Chuck Norris, Bruce Lee, like they, he, they had us into it. And then as a young basketball player, when I saw Kareem, Luau Cinder with Bruce Lee, oh, that was heaven. Him sitting down, Bruce walk over to him and captain kicks Bruce Lee in the chest and leaves a footprint. Oh, that, that's one of the more iconic moments of my childhood. So because Bruce had that soul, as I call it, and he spent time in the Bay Area, and you know, I always tell you Detroit and Oakland are cousins. Bruce Lee being a child of the 70s, maybe he enjoyed, like Bill Walton, a lot of hippie lettuce. I think he did too. I think he did too. I just got that idea. He just seems like he's fun. He just seemed like he was really fun to be around. And it's also, you know, one thing that I always love about these stories, and I think about this all the time, is you think about all the people that had Bruce Lee come to their office and had this young man sit on the couch or sit in the desk across from him and say, listen, I'm, you know, I, I grew up in Hong Kong. I'm an American born citizen. I've been in these films. I've been acting in films in Hong Kong for years and years. Think about all the Hollywood casting directors, producers and directors that looked at Bruce Lee and looked at his resume. He's been in films since he was a child and had this discussion with this, this sort of almost native speaking in English, but has this unique talent of Kung Fu that has the, the, the charm and the charisma and says, you know what? I'll pass. Just think about that. And it, this, this happens time and time again in with athletics and with entertainment that someone looked across the table, across the desk from Bruce Lee time and time again, year after year and said, nope, 
I'll pass. No, thank you, Bruce Lee. I know that you are one of the most talented martial artists on the planet. I know that you are an international experience. You're already a superstar across the ocean. Like you've already been a superstar before. <laughs> no, we won't take you. Like that's just mind boggling to me. Jacoby, it, it is, it, it has a lot to do with the skin, color of his skin. Absolutely. As you mentioned, his, his, his racial origin. Of course. And, in the 60s and 70s, our United States wasn't so very progressive yeah. as it related to being welcoming into people that weren't, you know, born as white Americans. And so I'm not surprised to hear that story, but I want to graduate it for you. Imagine all of that happening and you're an athlete and you're a Bruce Lee, which means you're in shape, you're physical. And if you're him, you can drop kick almost anybody. So imagine not only somebody basically not giving you an opportunity because of your origin, but you know if it really came to it, you could take them down really quick. Just think about that for a second. Now, it's one thing to deny me an opportunity, but you can't deny these hands. You, you can't deny that. And thinking in your head, that, that is, that, 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 that makes you show a different level of restraint that I appreciate how he was able to build his career and overcoming those obstacles. Absolutely. And Jalen, one thing I want to discuss is we've been doing this every week. We've had the honor of hosting this show, Jalen and Jacoby, the after show. Uh, thanks so much for watching and listening to this episode, but also we have a ton of old episodes. You know, when we spoke about Lance and we also spoke about Michael Jordan. So listen to all those two. But before we go, I want to ask you this question is we've had three people that we've talked about we spoke with the directors of the films of in a row michael jordan lance armstrong and bruce lee and there are some commonalities you know i mean obviously with lance and michael being in the world of athletics there's natural competition they create grievances they're extremely competitive and with i'd say a commonality between all three of them is hardship setback and also early setbacks you know if you think about the the j the jv team that michael jordan didn't make and you think about um, Lance Armstrong with testicular cancer, which is, you know, obviously not something that is, that he did. And then you have Bruce Lee with the oppression and the discrimination that he met in his acting career. How much do you think that those setbacks fueled their success? So every setback is preparing you for a setup. And what ends up happening with public figures, as I'll say, young people have diluted the thought and thinking if you're rich or you're famous, that means you're successful. Mm. And that ain't accurate. Preach. And so all of those guys have had to overcome turbulence in their lives like each of us do. But the key is how are you going to behave when it happens? Because it's going to have You can name me any athlete. Tom Brady, LeBron James, I could go on and on and on. And we could tell you all of the things they had to overcome to get where they are. And so that is something I hope people who watched all three documentaries will take from each. When the road gets tough, you got to keep slow. You got to keep fighting. Appreciate those words, Jalen. Thank you so much for joining me doing this every single week. Don't forget, you can listen to other episodes of Jalen and Jacoby, the after show. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll be back next week.